0: Hey there, welcome to Takeaway with Sam Okus, a podcast from Nations Restaurant News. I'm Sam Okus, Editor-in-Chief at NRN, and I am glad that you can join us for this show where I give you an all-access pass to the restaurant industry's most influential decision-makers. This week, I'm talking to Luke Holden. He is the founder and CEO of Luke's Lobster. It's a seafood fast casual that has a vertically integrated supply chain. So in other words, the company owns the entire distribution process from the moment the lobster comes off the boat to the moment it's served in Luke's brick and mortar shacks. I'm sure many of you are dealing with supply chain headaches right now. Trust me when I say that this conversation with Luke is well worth your time. He offers a transparent look at how much the supply chain has been disrupted during the pandemic, but he also gives an optimistic take on why short-term pains can lead to long-term gains. Before I jump into that conversation with Luke, though, I want to tell you about a few other ways that you can connect with NRN and our award-winning content. Not only can you subscribe to our monthly print edition and daily AM newsletter at NRN.com, but you can also subscribe to NRN's other podcast, Extra Serving, where our editors discuss the hot-button issues of the day, and we share interviews with a wide variety of restaurant personalities. And oh boy, did we have some personalities on a recent episode that featured Ann Pizza founder Michael Lestoria, Plant Burger founder and chef Spike Mendelson, and Wing Walk founder and Savory Fund operating partner James Park. I sat down with the three of them two weeks ago in Denver at Create, the future of food service, with a hunch that whatever we talked about would be interesting and valuable. And wow, did that hunch prove correct. Go check out that episode and other episodes of Extra Serving wherever you listen to podcasts. Speaking of Create, we had a blast hanging out with hundreds of restaurant operators in Denver, but the fun did not stop there. We've got plenty more content to come this year on Create's digital platform, including a live interview with Domino's CEO Rich Allison coming up on October 26th. Head to create.nrn.com for more information on that session and many others, and to register for the free digital platform that is Create. Again, that's create.nrn.com. Okay, jumping now into my interview with Luke's Lobster founder, Luke Holden. And don't forget to stick around after the interview, as I will share my five takeaways from this discussion, actionable insights that you can take with you on the go. All right, Luke Holden of Luke's Lobster, thank you so much for joining today. Uh, Luke, I think a lot of people might be familiar with Luke's Lobster. It's been around now for many years. You guys built this great presence of fast casual lobster roll shops. But tell, me, tell, tell our audience a little bit about pre-pandemic, at the start of 2020, what was the status of the company? What had this thing grown to?
1: Thanks for having me today, Sam. Um, so, start of the pandemic, we were heavily concentrated in, in urban cities. Um, So we were in Portland, Maine, Boston, three in Boston, probably 12 in New York city, four in DC, one in Philly, one in Miami, one in Vegas, uh, two in Chicago. And then we had um, one in Taiwan and 10 in Japan. So uh, restaurant wise, we were just over 30 close to actually close to 40 shacks, including the international and, um, the business was built, um, or vertically integrated seafood company. So, uh, essentially the supply chain is such that we, we have to organize ourselves with fishermen co-ops up and down, the um, Eastern seaboard. It comes into our production facility and we've grown that as the restaurant businesses has grown. So we've, we've, set relationships with fishermen and become dependable to to bring their product through our seafood company and then sell it predominantly through our restaurants. So just an amazing amount of disruption when all but one of those 40 some odd restaurants ended up closing.
0: So for sure, supply chain here is is a huge differentiator. I mean, th- there are very few restaurants that have that setup where you have such a direct connection to your supply. Uh, tell me a little bit more too about how that kind of came to fruition, because you guys have then expanded into beyond just selling that lobster in the shacks, right? I mean, you guys have you had CPG, right? I mean, you get you're, you're branching out into all sorts of other uh, revenue channels. Tell me a little bit about how the business has 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 branched out in that way.
1: Yeah, so um 2000 2019 we probably bought uh four million pounds four and a half million pounds of of lobster another two three million pounds of jonah crab this year will be somewhere around 10 um between both of those species and and so when you when you buy a lobster um there's it's kind of similar um to a concept that most people are more familiar with when you when you when you when you butcher a steer like you're ultimately going to get a bunch of different cuts of meat right um and a lobster is no different there's we we produce lobster shell lobster heemphelin um which is the blood uh lobster meat uh raw tails body meat Uh, leg meat. So there is like a bunch of different, and then there's different ratios of packs of that product. So there's a handful of different cuts or a handful of different products that happen when you process lobster. And you've got to do that in order to maximize the value proposition of the lobster. So you can keep costs affordable for the customer and keep prices high for fishermen. So Mm we have built that production facility to handle that product mix. And ultimately we've bought more lobster as the restaurants have needed more knuckle-claw meat. That's the best meat to be serving in a a lobster roll. And then we found channels, uh, partners, for the other products that we produce. So pre-pandemic, you know, we did earn, in 2018, we were in the global supplier of the year award for Whole Foods. Um, They're a huge customer of ours. We we handle most all of their lobster products. Um, But they were buying predominantly just a 10-pound case of lobster tails. So, you know, unbranded commodity pack and uh, and we were, were good at that. So the business was kind of simple. Put tails mm-hmm. in pound cases and 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 put meat in in bags to to Luke's and then the smaller, smaller, smaller uh, products, we just had a handful of customers. The whole business model got turned upside down when when the pandemic came about because all the restaurants closed. So we we had to continue to support our fishing communities. There was no chance that. Those was like that, their livelihood was to go out and harvest. So we had to show up at the docks. We had to buy the product. We had to safely produce it in a production environment, which was very challenging with COVID to keep people safe, um, I bet. social distancing. And, and then we had to completely reinvent ourselves on how we were selling products because the restaurants were all closed. So we went deep into consumer packaged goods. So like very quick, we stood up uh, eight different, Branded products from lobster mac and cheese to lobster bis to crab claw appetizer. Um, and, and, and we were very successful in opening up uh, good relationships with a handful of distributors in, in grocery stores beyond Whole Foods. And we were certainly buoyed by the exceptional demand in grocery stores. Mm. Um, the other way we handled it is we stood up a D2C business at the same time. We started an online market, uh, which is what we call our, our e-commerce or DDC business. And, um, that was another channel for us to get to the consumers that, that, you know, typically interface with us in our shacks, get them product, keep fishermen fishing so that we could keep the supply chain moving until we were able to start reopening restaurants. So complete disruption. Um, but long-term value creation by opening up that brand new grocery business and, um, and the online market.
0: Yeah, this is... Fascinating to me because, you know, I've spent the last 18 months talking about brands that have survived by opening virtual brands, right? Like the restaurants that have leveraged virtual concepts, they've rolled out delivery for the first time or takeout or whatever that is. What, what you guys have done is, is really so unique and obviously born of that unique operation in having this supply chain um, access that you do have. Tell me about demand for lobster over the last 18 months because I know that there was, you know, obviously in the beginning of the pandemic, economically speaking, we were talking about recession and I can't imagine lobster does great in a recession, but what has demand been like over the last 18 months? It's, it's, I've never seen anything like it. So the beginning of the pandemic, uh,
1: when China, when China closed down shut their borders to imports, it ultimately ended up completely flattening the lobster market. There was a lot of inventory that was earmarked for, um, the Chinese new year, uh, the lunar new yeah. year. And when that, when that event was basically just ordered up, um, the lobster market was flooded with inventory and price dropped to historical lows. Mm. So that was mostly frozen inventory. And then we had the Canadian season opening up in April and May and fishermen were out fishing, but a lot of production facilities couldn't figure out how to open and process. So the price of fishermen was very low and, um, and there was very little market because typically grocery stores are not a place for lobster products. It's most 80% of the seafood in the U S is actually consumed within people's homes. I'm sorry, within restaurants. So, okay. so people just like had to learn in the pandemic, how to go to the, how, how to take something from a grocery store, a lobster product from the grocery store and cook it at home. Um, and so we kind of did that during the pandemic. We educated the consumer, gave them access, educated the consumer, and then when restaurants started to reopen, like this is a wild natural resource that's got a very healthy supply that's up this year versus last year. However, the demand is 2X. So hmm. we're now paying fishermen three times the price that we were paying at the lowest point of the pandemic and wow. the finished products are like, I started Luke's back in 2009 and at the time lobster meat was, was being costed, or it was reaching the market at $14 a pound. It's now $45 a pound right now. And Whoa. I've never seen it in the last 10 years higher than $28 a pound. So wow. it, it is just exceptionally expensive and it's, it's great for fishing communities. So I'm, I'm proud of that. I'm proud that we will build an industry that can support such a, uh, uh extreme price to the fishing communities but kind of everyone in between in the supply chain whether it's the the co-op or the wharf or the dealer or the processor or the marketer um it's there's not a lot of margin in in this business right now so i i hope that we can find new ways to um to create create even more perceived value in lobsters so that so we can continue to take price because otherwise it could be a kind of a scary outcome for the commodity.
0: Yeah, this is. I, I it's it's so interesting because I think seafood has such a different, the pricing of seafood is such a different ball game than some of the, so many other commodities. And you know, when you say the cost for lobster is forty five dollars a pound, that my first thought is you know to your point, you're trying to support the communities, so that's great for those communities, as you say. But then, I mean, do you just pass it down to the customer? And does that then inherently drop demand? I mean, just thinking about basic supply and demand for lobster have such a volatile pricing. Um, I guess who, who's sort of left in the middle here in terms of the, the cost and who's paying for what? And, and is it ultimately a good thing? So from your standpoint, as somebody who leads a company selling lobster, do you want the price to be high or do you want the price to be low?
1: You want it to be equitable. So you want it to be high enough that fishermen are, are encouraged to go out and, and compete, work hard, make money. Um, if, if they can't compete, make money, they're not going to go out and work hard um, and, and, and go fish and find lobster. Um, so and then if it's too high, like at this point in time, we're not really running a sustainable business. Right. There's the margins are not they're not there to to support the operation that we have. So like, it's a kind of a short-term bet that we're kind of going through a flex period right now. Um, we like anecdotally, when pre-pandemic, we were charging between 18 and $19 for a quarter pound lobster roll. And right now we're charging 21 to $22 um, <clears throat> for a quarter pound lobster roll. So we've taken three to $4 a roll on price, but our costs have literally doubled, literally doubled. And you know, we're each in each price increment, we just like take one dollar and see how the market reacts. And uh, I would say that it's just like it's starting to feel um like people are understanding, but ultimately you know not finding enough value to, to come back at the frequency that we need to make it work. So um th- th- that hasn't happened yet but i just like it's like I-, I think any restaurateur that takes price like has fear that at some point in time like y- 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 most guests don't like they don't blow you up on the spot they just don't come mm-hmm. back and like that's your right. that's your ultimate fear in this and we're just so singly focused on lobster as a protein that there's a lot of risk in that for us so we're trying to take make a long-term decision by by eating margins to, to just, just keep the guests and keep value for the guests.
0: Yeah, that concept of value I have to imagine is so important to what you've been trying to accomplish with the shacks. I mean, doing this fast casual uh, lobster roll shack that is scalable, the whole point of scaling a business, particularly a fast casual, is to lock in a price and to provide value, right? So how do you think about it in the context of the shacks and, and value and what you – Ultimately, long term, are are doing there? How do you how do you continue to provide value, especially because I assume this is going to continue to be a roller coaster for the lobster cost?
1: Yeah, it. You know, like I mean, Sam. The truth is that like right now, that's not even like the biggest concern, right? The biggest concern is is putting a a team together to operate these shocks mm-hmm. in an environment mm-hmm. that ultimately like sometimes feels safe one day and not safe the next day and there's been exceptional labor shortages which have put pressure on um on that on that base of 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 teammates and like we've been exceptionally lucky's well, probably not the right word because we're pretty intentional around how 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 we've built culture and treat teammates. We've, we've been very lucky not to have a, um, very much turnover at, at the shacks. Um, but, but like the whole concept of like running a sustainable business right now, it's like, I don't know, the whole thing's a little bit upside down, right? Like we're, you're, we, we are, our revenue mix is all messed up. Like what we typically look at for profit margins for people coming into the front door or takeout is, is now uh, not, not as productive because a huge part of our sales is third-party delivery. And, and that's not as, uh, that takes margin away from us. Um, so like you, kind of look at the whole thing and it's just, we've just kind of been taking the whack-a-mole approach a little bit and, um, and just making sure that like two tenants that they, that were founding tenants when we opened Luke's was treat people the way you'd like to be treated and serve the best quality lobster roll at the best possible price and, and we're just as as we kind of counter one tough decision after the next we're just staying grounded in that and not making any sacrifices that would ultimately um move us against our move us not in building momentum towards our brand mission which is to become the world's most respected seafood brand so Um, definitely taking a long-term approach on this, but, uh, definitely feeling a lot of short-term pains.
0: Sure. Yeah. Sure. You're not alone in that. Um, tell me about the status of the shacks. You said that they, they had to close down early in the pandemic. What's, have they all opened back up? What, where are we at with those right now?
1: Yeah, I think we lost probably 25% of the shacks, um, either a balance of, uh, a food hall permanently closing or, um, a landlord not being open-minded to you know make a percentage of sales or deferred rent or abatement type deal with us um, so there's definitely been uh, uh, we've definitely kind of we've worked hard to make the best decisions we possibly can to not just work to go backwards and and the biggest lever has just been what's going on in that city for for traffic and what is the and infection rates, and what's what's the landlord willing to do to kind of keep us around for the long term? And we found we found uh, we found some situations that have worked out well for everybody, and then and then just disagreements, and just lock the door and move on.
0: So then, you know, I'm thinking about talking to a lot of fast casuals over the course of this season, you know, especially those like you who have found success in very urban areas and very office district kind of uh, neighborhoods. Ha- have you put a lot of thought into the evolution of the shacks and, and a direction you might want to take those? A lot of people talking about suburbs, people talking about drive throughs off-premises, all, all these things in the future of, you know, what the restaurant looks like. Are, are these some of the same things you're thinking about with the shacks in the future?
1: Um honestly I'm more interested in going the opposite direction. Um so we're we're good operators and in urban environments and and right now there's quite a bit of opportunity in these markets. Like long term, I'm more of a believer that uh that New York will will be New York once again, and so will Boston and DC and they might come back at different paces. But generally speaking, um we are we're getting back to growing at this point in time. And the leases that we're negotiating are in uh, uh, markets that we've got concentration in and markets that are have been heavily affected by the pandemic.
0: Yeah, you talk about your employees and and navigating this complicated labor situation today. I'm sure you don't have any (laughs) answers here as much as anybody else doesn't have any answers here, but what, what has worked for you? You talked about being able to retain a lot of employees. What's the, what's the thing that you guys have built that makes people want to stick around and how are you really ensuring that you can take care of employees in this really crazy season that continues even today?
1: Yeah. I, one thing that we started talking about, um, very early in the pandemic at the onset of the pandemic we just like the concept of balance and making sure that we're having one of our core brand values is transparency and making sure that we're having transparent conversations around balance for for all of our teammates so not taking a macro approach not taking a market approach not taking a shack approach but taking a teammate by teammate approach to what balance means for them um what's going on at home what's your level of comfort with vaccination or pandemic in general like wh- financially what wh- how is your situation set up i mean they were we had a handful of teammates that were like the anxiety around coming to work isn't isn't worth it for me relative to what i need to survive so i'm going to go on unemployment and and for that for us that wasn't like well that's the wrong decision it was that's the right decision for you um And so when you kind of work through that and build those types of relationships with your teammates, sincere relationships, we've been able to, um, we've been able to grow our culture during the pandemic and, and the team has just done an amazing job for that. If it wasn't for the people, uh, there is just, there is no chance we would have made it through this thing. We just had an exceptional core of people that have, have continued just to, not compromise and serving the world's best lobster roll and treating people the way we'd like to be treated and and the way you'd like to be treated and and you know that it's kind of kept us together
0: that's great i mean i i think that's a step above a lot of companies probably in this day and age as they continue to try to find people good people to be able to work for them um i'm curious about i know that your supply chain is so different than a lot of other supply chains, um, but there has been a lot of talk about supply chain in the last two years, the last eighteen months, because of the disruption that has happened, and because so many markets have just been completely turned on their head. I'm just curious, from your standpoint, you know, not not just with lobster, but just generally, what do you feel like this season has taught? all of us about supply chain, you know, I, I, whether or not, I don't know if there's any lessons you can learn from lobster that can be applied to like beef and chicken too. But just generally speaking, what should we all take from this into the future as it relates to supply chain?
1: You know, this, a, a story that comes to mind when you ask this question is I was, I was down, um, I was down in New York yesterday, just working through all of the shacks and meeting the, the general managers. And our, the big issue that we're dealing with right now is that our distributor doesn't have enough, picking labor or trucking labor to get us what we need so what they ultimately ended up doing was taking a, a trailing six-month average of of how many how many picks or how many packages per order our, our GMs had been ordering and then reduced it by 30 percent so a general manager who generally speaking like ordered a little um uh ordered to just stock the shelves like can still make this whole thing work a general manager who was uh very mindful of the inventory dollars that they carried uh ultimately now like doesn't can't get enough packages to just keep things moving like they can't get enough lemons they can't get enough to go climb shelves they can't get enough bags etc and it, it it all comes back to people like from what i understand like with this distributor, it's like our products are sitting on the shelves in the warehouse at this point in time, but they don't have the people to to pick and pack and ship these these orders. So, I I think I think like we're going to see at Luke's. We're pretty fortunate where we've got a we've got a pretty lean labor model. We've got from a from a comparative um, basis, we've got exceptionally high cogs uh almost par rent on a percentage of sales basis and then um we we typically make a PL room on on, on a on a labor side of things because we're we just don't need a lot of headcount. there's not a lot of prep because we've got the we've got the production facility in maine um the the complexity of some of these restaurants that aren't delivering exceptional value um it just it begs to wonder how they're going to revamp their, their, their people situation and their people program. And and like the way that you kind of see a lot of the States moving with, uh, and probably eventually the feds with, with minimum wage and, um, and tipped, tipped labor. It's like, I, I, you, you ultimately could see a situation where if, unless you're serving, like unless you're in a, super fine dining establishment like there's just no room for 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 wait staff any longer in a in a restaurant piano just be a real shame because it's not going to it's not going to improve the lives of the workers it's it's just going to change the service model and probably repress the labor rates at the end of the day which is which is just a bummer it really is but um um So uh, there's definitely, there's definitely been an amazing amount of, uh, I I used the analogy earlier of just playing whack-a-moles and like the supply chain has been one of those things where we do a lot of self-distribution because we're vertically integrated and there's been products that we've never distributed, self-distributed in the past that like, we just have to start doing in order to make ends meet. And then hopefully a distributor will pick that back up again, because of value add for us to be moving cases of water or, or all natural soda around but maybe we have to do it for a short time so it's it's just a uh it's crazy how delicate the whole supply chain actually was i don't think anybody anticipated that
0: yeah and hopefully this is all a uh just a lesson in how to be prepared for the next disruption, possibly. But, you know, talking about how you you change some of your practices, like even self-distributing, um, I'm, I'm just reminded of how often I've talked about silver linings with operators over the last 18 months and this notion of that forced innovation that a lot of them had to turn to ended up being innovations that will last them a long time. And, you know, it sounds to me like a lot of particularly your work into more supermarkets, your work into CPG, I mean, strikes me as those could be incredible growth paths for you going forward. So I'm just curious, what are the things you've picked up in the last 18 months that you feel are going to be a part of the Luke's business long term? Yeah, I, I am very
1: proud of the work that we've done in, in building a, uh, a branded grocery CPG line. Um, I think there's a lot of future growth for us to continue to develop that channel. And I also really, we've done a phenomenal job building a, an online market. Um, it's a whole new business D 2 C, uh, the KPIs that we're tracking to, to measure success and progress in that building are just, it's a total different language relative to seafood processing or, or running restaurants. But the team is, is brought on some exceptional people. They've learned quickly. Um, and, and I like that business long-term too. So, uh, for, for us, um, this has been a huge short-term pain, but I think, uh, I, I don't know how long it'll take to get back to like some sense of normalization from a sales and profitability standpoint. But, um, I do strong, I have strong conviction that we get on the other side of this, uh, it'll be a better um we'll have a better business than than we had pre-pandemic
0: now we've talked about these communities that you are supporting um fishermen and um you're 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 currently in portland You, you launched this business out of new york you are now moving the business to portland i know you guys have built incredible facilities in portland and are taking care of the communities there how much What's what does that look like today? I mean, you you mentioned how much of a struggle it was to figure out how to be in this pandemic with this business model that you have, and then talking about the demand and where that stands today. But how is the community now, and and how are what are more ways you're continuing to work specifically with the fishermen community to ensure that this is a st- sustainable business?
1: Yeah. So, um, it, it's been a great year for. The the lobster men and lobster women um, up and down the state of Maine, like they've had strong catches, record prices, um, and that's that's great, right? That's like a that's a significant um, injection into their balance sheet. This is an industry that ultimately um, has, I mean, there's real infrastructure to go out and catch lobsters. You're talking million plus dollar type investment for each fisherman for between their boat traps gear. Um, so it's, it's phenomenal that they have a year where where they can either reinvest in their business or, or, or pay debt down. But at the same time, there's complications, um, long-term, right? There's, uh, we've, we've spent a lot of time, uh, this year, reinforcing the supply chain for bait. Um, bait has been something that's, uh, been in, Low supply, uh, certainly high demand because of how strong the price has been, and and price has gone up. So we've been working with suppliers across the world to level load um, and stabilize costs, so that uh, margin at the at the boat level is as um, at an all time high. And then th- there's the business that we like in the future is is one where our communities are not dependent on any one species. Say lobster, so there's there's a lot of work to be done. I think um, not in the short term, but over the long term, to make sure that we're taking a holistic perspective on on how a fisherman should should earn and how they should manage their their 12-month calendar. Now there's 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 exceptional periods of exceptional lobster landings, and then there's lulls. and I'd love to see um, more fishermen take um, a more balanced approach to Harvesting scallops, sanning for pogies, looking for bluefin tuna, um, aquaculture with 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 kelp in particular, um, and looking at a 12-month calendar and saying, "Hey, how do I maximize um, each month from a from a sales and profit standpoint?" and and how do I do it in a way that ultimately um, is 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 a greener approach towards towards harvesting um and i think that uh the industry's got a lot of work to do to to continue to figure out what success looks like there for for the sustainability industry and the durability of the fishing fleet that's in place
0: seafood is such a I mean, you talked about, I mean, you had international shacks. You talk about how China, you know, what China does has such an impact on supply and demand. Um, What you're doing is very localized. And I'm I'm curious just for the sake, the state of the seafood industry. I mean, this is something I know we've talked a lot about as an industry, seafood sustainability in the past, um, you know, two decades, I guess. Um, this is an, there's a lot of efforts to put programs in place to ensure seafood sustainability. For those who are listening, who are not caught up on where seafood sustainability generally stands today, uh, w- what is that? Where where do we stand with seafood sustain- sustainability globally, and how does Maine fit within this? Yeah, globally, I,
1: I don't think we're in a great place. But I am not an expert on the global um, on a global front. The the North America does a great job measuring biomass and managing quotas. Um, we really do. Um, from US all throughout Atlantic Canada, there are uh, regulatory um, agencies, uh, practices in place that ultimately ensure bycatch is being managed and and overfishing is being controlled. And, uh, and that's a, it's a wonderful thing for the wild resource that, that we have. But the reality is that fish have fish have tails, and crustaceans have legs, and, and they 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 move all across the globe. So it would be wonderful if if we, as a as a population base, could become more educated on where our seafood is coming from, and consumers make choices to prioritize seafood that is being um, sustainably caught. Now, there's no question that. In order to feed the planet, uh, we're gonna have to continue to develop aquaculture and good aquaculture is a great thing. I think there's still kind of a, uh, a negative connotation around aquaculture in general, but whether it's land-based or open ocean, um, there's, there's uh, exceptional aquaculture programs um, in place and developing and, and that is going to be a uh, necessary part of, of, of balancing our ecosystem in the future.
0: So Luke, last question for you. I, I'm curious for your sake as the leader of this company, what you feel like you've learned about leadership and about yourself as a leader, because look, I mean, your this business has your name on it. It's Luke's lobster. And I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, through this crisis that nobody had a playbook for totally unprecedented, how do you feel you've grown as a leader? What have you learned that you'll, you'll take with you into the future?
1: Yeah, I, I think uh, unintentionally in the beginning um, there was a lot of vulnerability that uh, I'm always a pretty open and transparent person, but, uh, but the amount of vulnerability that, that uh, naturally I just displayed because I didn't know how to do anything else. um, I think uh, was something that uh, was ultimately comforting for the team. You know, that, that, that standard like founder CEO needs to have all the answers and need to stand up 10 feet tall. Um, you know, I was not that guy and in the re- reality is it didn't have all the answers and needed the team to make the best answer with the limited information that we had. So, um, I, I fully expect, uh, to, to maintain that, that sense of, uh, vulnerability and openness in the future. Um, and I think, uh, I think one other piece that I just want to not be like, I don't want time to erase is just how exceptional the team can be in, in, in a crisis and without a crisis. Like there's been moments where like we have spun things up and got things done, um, in just incredible form and fashion. And, um, I've just, it's, it's been amazing. It's been humbling. And, and, and in so many ways, having somebody say, I don't think we can do that. Like there's going to be so many examples over the last two years that could say, well, we did this back then, so I'm sure we can do this in the future. Um, so I'm, I'm, uh, and I'm just super optimistic for, for, for seafood production and, and hospitality and, um, and for the Luke's lobster brand in general. Um, but definitely acknowledging that, you know, the last 18 months, two years have just been, um, it's been a struggle, but, uh, I, I will, I would end to Sam that this industry has also just been very supportive and we have a strong network in in, uh, the different industries that that we operate in and, and people have been gracious with their time and they've been collaborative and, um. It's been nice to see and I hope uh I hope I hope people stay that way. Right. It's just been it's been wonderful to have as many uh um, collaborative partners to kind of figure out what's the best next move. And um, hospitality industry is has always been a little more collaborative than the seafood industry. Um, but both have uh picked it up a notch in the last uh the last bit here.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that. Hospitality is hospitality for a reason, and I've I've totally seen that as well. Luke Holden of Luke's Lobster, thank you for taking some time today. Good luck to you guys. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on, Sam. That was my interview with Luke Holden, the founder and CEO of Luke's Lobster. So what should you learn from this interview? Here are my five takeaways. First, while you very likely will not have a chance to own your own supply chain quite like Luke's does, you can still invest in your supply chain's success. Lobster prices are notoriously volatile, and the fishermen catching lobsters are members of their local communities. Many of them are parts of families who've been fishing for generations. Luke's has dedicated itself to supporting those fishermen and women by building relationships with them and ensuring that they have a buyer for their catch. The company's diversified its distribution model, so now it buys, processes, packs, and distributes all parts of the lobster as well as other seafood, which means that it's not boxed in by what it's selling at Luke's exclusively, and it can always guarantee distribution and therefore purchases. What is that equivalent for your brand? What are some ways you can support your suppliers in this challenging time and ensure that their business is sustainable and set up for long-term success? Speaking of long-term success, my second takeaway is that in the midst of these supply chain challenges, consider that you can make long-term gains through short-term pains. For Lukes, that means letting its profit margin take a hit as it pays exponentially more for its product without significantly raising its prices. Luke shared how the brand raised the price of its lobster rolls by a couple of bucks, but it wasn't even close to making up for cost increases. But Luke's has a value propos- proposition to its customers, one, that it's committed to, one that's committed to selling affordable, high-quality lobster rolls in a fast, casual setting, and they have to protect that proposition. By taking a hit now, they can hold on to loyal customers and continue building momentum for the future. Similarly, my third takeaway is that in a season of complete disruption, you can create long-term value. We've been talking since the beginning of the pandemic about the ways in which restaurant companies have benefited from their so-called pandemic pivots from the forced innovations that they made in order to overcome uh, COVID challenges. Luke's had a much more severe disruption. Due to its presence in urban centers, it had to close its brick-and-mortar shacks for a season. That meant that off-premises couldn't be the band-aid that it was for other concepts. But Luke's found another way to distribute products through consumer packaged good channels, so selling to supermarkets like Whole Foods, and a direct-to-consumer model in which it stood up an e-commerce platform. Those two channels didn't just sustain Luke's while its shacks were closed, they're also now incredibly important parts of the Luke's future. My fourth takeaway is that you should not count out urban areas for growth. Luke is the first restaurant leader I've spoken to in a year and a half who has not set his sights on the suburbs for expansion. You know, early in the pandemic when the central business districts became ghost towns with quarantining and working from home, it was easy for restaurants to pledge expanding into suburbs and beyond as a way to safeguard against future shutdowns. And to a large degree, those companies are holding to it. Even as cities fill with people again, the suburbs have become the next frontier for especially fast casual expansion. But Luke isn't jumping on that bandwagon. He still sees a future for urban expansion and in fact is finding great options opportunity in the leases available in the central business districts today. Finally, my fifth takeaway is that being vulnerable as a leader can help you problem solve and build culture. Vulnerability is kind of in vogue right now. You hear it from thought leaders like Brené Brown. We heard it from our Create Keynoter, former Chipotle co-CEO Monty Moran, who credits much of that company's success to the leadership structure built around love and vulnerability. Luke said he's learned to be more vulnerable in the pandemic because he didn't have all the answers and he needed to turn to his team for help. That didn't just help Luke's get more creative with how it responded to the challenges of the season, but it also helped the corporate team grow closer together. Those are all my takeaways for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember to subscribe to Takeaway wherever you listen to podcasts and to leave your feedback. You can also email me at sam.ocus at informa.com. Thanks again and talk to you next week.